0: Hey guys, and welcome to another episode of Girl Boss Radio from Panoply. I'm Sophia Amoruso, the founder of NastyGal.com, the author of the New York Times bestselling book Girl Boss, and the author of Nasty Galaxy, which comes out October 4th. I'm going to be coming to a few different cities. I should be announcing those dates on the podcast. I will soon. You can reserve your signed copy on nastygall.com slash book or com. On this podcast, I interview a different woman every week who's carved out a path for herself that I admire, who's achieved something, who has an interesting start and an interesting story. Uh, I hope to extract solid advice for you guys and for myself, selfishly, because I always need it. To stay in touch with all things Girl Boss, please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Girl Boss. You can sign up for our newsletter, Girl Boss Diary, by going to girlboss.com. And you can follow me at Sophia Amoruso, that's S O P H I A A M O R U S O on Snapchat, Instagram, and Twitter. I hope Girl Boss Radio helps you to achieve your goals, or at the very least provides some amount of inspiration for you to maybe just make a few. So please help us achieve our goals. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on iTunes and share your love on social media. We've been in the top 100 podcasts recently, and we were number seven on the iTunes business podcasts this week. And with your help, we can stay there and maybe even move up the ranks. All right, time for the interview. Our guest, Grace Bonney, has worked as a contributing editor at Domino and House and Garden Magazines and as a freelancer with top publications like Food & Wine, InStyle, New York Magazine, and more. But it was her blog, Design Sponge, that she started way back in 2004 as a hobby that's become her biggest career legacy called Martha Stewart living for millennials by the New York times design sponge now attracts 80,000 readers a day, just on the main site. Their Instagram has 800,000 followers and her new book in the company of women, which is so beautiful provides motivating and relatable examples of all kinds of women running their own businesses. And we love to talk about women running shit on girl boss radio We're thrilled to have Grace join us from our studios in New York. Grace, welcome to Girl Boss Radio. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. Actually, you're not here. You're in (laughs) Brooklyn um, where our listeners know that a lot of our important guests on the East Coast join us. Um, I wish we could be together, but I'm here with your beautiful book that is so exciting and beautiful and inspiring. Um, But first I want to start with, you know, your beginnings, because that's where we start, and everybody has a start, and it's really important. Part of this podcast is just talking about, you know, where we all began, and, um, you know, there's it's nice to celebrate our successes, but it's also really important to to pour a little out for our, <laughs> the homies who were once us, I guess. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so— What was your first job? And so a lot of people will respond with like, oh, my first job out of college was, but then there's like the real first job that was like, I mean, for some people it's babysitting. I would say maybe post babysitting. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So Grace, what was your first job?
1: So I worked at a what I like to think of as the very worst country club in Virginia Beach, Virginia, where I grew up. And I was originally supposed to be what they called a cart girl, which was one of the girls who wore like way too short shorts and drove around and tried to sell all the old Mm -hmm. guys playing golf beer. And then it quickly became clear that I was not like blonde enough or cute enough <laughs> to get the guys to buy enough beer. Oh my God. So they put me inside where I worked in the food section. And so I was a waitress and kind of like cooked short order stuff for a summer until I abruptly ended my country club career by dropping a banquet table on my foot. And I broke all oh, my shit. toes at the exact oh same time.
0: <laughs> oh, my God.
1: And and that was it. So that was my very first job. And it ended quite dramatically.
0: Are your toes okay now?
1: <laughs> They're totally fine. It turns out <laughs> okay. that when you break all of them, there's just nothing to do because you can't tape them to anything. So oh my I just God. like discovered Demerol and a boot, a
0: moon boot <laughs> and and <gasps> had a really great week. <laughs> that sounds nice. Yeah. And like, yeah, you can like eat whatever. Right? Yeah. <laughs> um, you had a first job after college. Was that any better? Did you break any toes? Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, <laughs>
1: No broken toes at the second
0: job, but lots of drama I
1: was which was the weirdest title ever officially called the Ministress of Information for cool. a record label called Ropadope, which I believe is now defunct and it was sort of a like <laughs> white kid hip hop and jazz label and when I went there they were about to start doing the solo album for Mike Gordon who is better known as the fish player the bass player from Fish and I was a recovering hippie at that point and I jumped at the chance to work on that album and really really enjoyed it, but kind of quickly became disillusioned with um, just everything about the music industry. And so that job uh-huh. was was short-lived. And from that, I went on to design PR and kind of never looked back.
0: Wow. Cool. Ropa Dope. That's like, it's like an SNL name for, <laughs> um, for a record label like that. It's kind of amazing. And so what was the college experience like for you? Do you feel like your college education um, helped direct you into what you're doing today? No. <laughs> um, <laughs> none, I, none of the above. I,
1: no, I um I kind of jumped around. I went to NYU for a year and a half and fell in love with New York City, but really didn't enjoy my school experience, and so I wanted to transfer after the first semester. My parents, which I'm glad they did, forced me to stay and said you need to really give this a shot. And then when it became clear I had given it a shot and still didn't like it, I transferred back to a very small school in Virginia where I'm from called the College of William and Mary and ended up thinking I was going to be a writing major and then didn't really love that program. So I switched to fine art where I kind of did my best to cobble together something that was part art history and part fine art. And it was okay, but I I think I spent all four years feeling like I didn't quite ever fit into the school because I spent half of it at one school and half at another. And I just Mm -hmm. never fully blended in. And then I ended up getting a radio show, which was all jam bands all the time. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And uh, that's when I started making a lot of hemp jewelry by myself. Uh, So it was it was a fun time, but I don't think I had a very typical college experience. But that kind of became important to me because when I graduated and couldn't quite find my people or my place in New York City, Mm -hmm. I think building my website kind of became my attempt to create that community i hadn't felt before
0: that's so interesting i feel like that's what happened to me i moved around a lot i mean i didn't i spent some time in community college but yeah yeah when you're that age you think you're gonna find your tribe and i do think some people may um and they have their like sorority sisters and they all like grow up together and then they get married together and then they have kids together and however that works but like then there's the rest of us who just don't fit in as much as we try wherever that may be, even if there's people with like the same music taste or interest or course of study or political beliefs. And that's like a really lonely thing to continue to grow out of. I mean, clearly you had a hippie phase, but do you feel like you've almost like lived many lives in terms of like seeking in that way before you kind of built your own like safe haven with design sponge? it's that's really I've never thought of it that way but that's really true
1: I think I have really kind of what felt like lived lots of different lives because I think I so desperately wanted to be a part of a group and
0: mm-hmm. kind
1: of fell into that with the hippie group because it felt so easy to sort of immediately belong it's just like you join kinda, the drum
0: circle yeah
1: it's like you just wear a certain type of clothes and throw on some hemp and like you care about like the environment and listen to fish and that was all easy to do and I think I was always looking to replicate that in some community and just never quite felt at home. And and even to this day, I still don't think I feel that way with any social group. I think I do in my work life. But um, I, th- I think it's just some people that's just never going to be a thing. Like not everybody finds like a huge group that they fit into. But I've I've worked really hard to build like a small friend circle of people I really trust. and And we all have like similar values and interests and things. But I think none of us would have probably been friends in college, which I always find really interesting. <laughs>
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's like usually the case. It's pretty funny. I want to talk about rejection and just like, you know, your experience with it. I mean, I feel like there's the rejection that really happens and then there's just when we don't fit in and that's like a different type of rejection. But were there any moments where you just felt like totally rejected dejected what am I doing with my life prior to you know starting design sponge
1: oh yeah my senior critique of college um I had I think four or five professors because my fine art department was really small and when I had all my work on the wall we all went around for our final grade and this one professor looked at me and just said this is awful you're never going to be an artist and you don't have any talent and just flat out said that And I like tried so hard to hold like angry tears back and just kind of ended up like swallowing them and then walking into the hallway and bursting into tears. And I was really lucky that I had this one professor kind of pull me aside and she said, you know, the way he said that was not great. But like I think his point is is that I think you have a good eye, but like being an artist is not going to be your path, which I think I kind of always knew, but I was so desperately wanted to be around creative people all the time. And I loved to write. Mm. And that's just not A degree like no one can just give you a degree and like really wanting to be around artistic people and write about them
0: yeah creating stuff (laughs) yeah so
1: I thought it wasn't a thing yet so I but I think that moment of her telling me like hey take this for what it is and use it as fuel to you know prove him wrong basically and that really did kind of fuel me for the first few years of design sponge was just this desire to prove that I had something to say and could hang with the creative kids even if I wasn't you know
0: one of them necessarily do you feel like you had to prove yourself like when you are around artists or designers or people who know what an S-curve is or <laughs> – um I don't know. I feel like creatives can be really nerdy about their technical prowess, which even when you do become part of that world, you can find yourself like not taken seriously because you're not like in the thick of uh, adjusting raw files like <laughs> or something. Do you know what I mean? Yeah,
1: totally. I I really think I've had the opposite experience, though, where I have been told that I'm a little too creative and DIY for most of the people that I work with on the business end of my business. And Mm -hmm. that's not the experience anymore, but it was for the first four or five years. And I think a lot of it was rooted in sexism and ageism. And I was, you know, 23 years old and running a business and people who wanted Mm -hmm. to advertise with me just didn't understand what I was doing, but they still wanted to advertise. So there was this moment of trying to figure out the hierarchy there, um, but when it came to artists and designers, I was focusing so much on the handmade community, and I think there wasn't quite as much pretense in those people mm-hmm. because I wasn't really—I was working with people who were just starting and just coming up, and we—we we kind of all felt like we were in the same place.
0: So, tell me about Design Sponge and the genesis of Design Sponge. What the you know world was like? What year did you found the company? In two thousand four. Yeah, I mean, that is what 12 years ago. That's amazing. There's I don't think I've had a woman on this podcast who's been running a company that long. I think we inched towards a decade with Melissa Biggs Bradley. Mm -hmm. But that's incredible. What was the world like in 2004? And how has running Design Sponge changed since then?
1: It's interesting, because I think if I tried to start what I did, the Design Sponge now, it wouldn't have been nearly as successful because the community has completely changed. Um, I started it primarily because I wasn't seeing the type of design and art that I wanted to see um, represented in mainstream media or TV or magazines. And so I decided to start the blog to write about the things I was seeing. And I was living in Greenpoint. It was in Brooklyn. It was 2004 and 2003. I'd been there as well. And I was just taking pictures of student shows and people's garages. And they were making furniture out of found materials. And they were like casting takeout containers and porcelain. And it was just this kind of fun, (laughs) inventive Time period, and the rest of the media world hadn't really taken notice. And so I was just walking around with like a point and click camera, taking pictures and writing about it on my blog. And I was way too informed by political blogs. Like I loved Wong and was really into that site. And so I kept trying to write with this like very snarky tone that just did not work for me. So those first few years, I think I spent a lot of time trying to figure out what my voice was supposed to be until I figured out what felt right for me. Um, but I just wanted to create a place where I could talk about the things I liked. And my honest to goodness goal was really to just use that blog to maybe one day get a job in a magazine. And mm-hmm. I really thought that the magazine world was like the safest place to ever be. And it wasn't until I ended up actually getting a job in a magazine after I'd had the blog for a few years. And then all those magazines shuttered that I realized that print wasn't quite the stable place I thought it would be.
0: That's So interesting. And so when did you decide to bring on your first employee? When did Design Sponge become something that was ad supported? How did you how did you do it in the early days? We, I mean, I took on ads
1: almost pretty immediately, because at, at that point, there wasn't sort of any strong ethical objection to them. I think we were all just totally enamored of the fact that someone would p- want to pay us to put something on a page. Um, so I think I took ads maybe like six months after starting the site and they were very small. And I think maybe like someone paid me like $200 to put something up and I just couldn't get over how exciting that was. And -hmm. then I think maybe three or four years into running it, there was a whole movement um, of people who put badges on their website that said ad-free blog. And it was like Mm -hmm. this very staunchly anti-consumerism thing that was happening, which I totally understood. But I also, from an early point in that job, realized that there was nothing wrong with thinking your time and your voice was, was worth something. And so mm-hmm. I kind of always focused on how to make that a, a real part of the business. And then in 2007, when all of the magazines started closing that I was writing for – I realized that the blog might actually be something worth putting more time into and not just sort of a side job. And at that point, I realized I'm by no means an expert in all the fields I would like to talk about. So I reached out to people who were friends or people I admired and said, you know, you're really great with food and drinks or you're really great with DIY. Like, would you want to come write about anything? And I just totally gave them free reign and split the ad money with everybody just evenly. And that's how the team
0: began. That's so nice. And how did you get traction with your readers? At what point did you know that people were, you know, paying attention to this and you were like, oh, my God, this is a thing? And how has your audience grown since then? And how do you, you know, how do you interact with your readership? Because I think that's a really important, you know, thing, especially in like the age of social media Mm -hmm. and blogging. And people really take a personal interest and um, almost ownership in, in what you're doing.
1: Oh, they do. That's that's a very real <laughs> thing that I think I, I both struggle with and enjoy um, at certain times. And I'm still the only person who runs all of our social media, and I'm the person who answers all of our comments um, and moderates most of our comments. So... It's, it's a very big part of what I do and it's something that most people tell me to delegate, but I feel really strongly about sort of still being the, the voice that people hear from and trust. So that's really important to me and it, it means it takes me longer to get back to emails than I would like, but I still try to get back to all of them. So. Really being engaged across every platform is something that I care about a lot. But in mm-hmm. terms of growing the site, it's kind of grown in fits and spurts. And I definitely benefited from being an early adopter because when I started my blog, there were maybe four other home blogs like I think Apartment Therapy was like maybe a year in and there was a Canadian blog called Moco Loco that was maybe a year in as well. And when there's only four or five places to choose from, I mean, it's just easy for the four or five of us that are there to kind of get the bulk of the traffic. But I had kind of a bumpy start because... There was a story in the New York Times written about you know this weird thing called design blogging, and they profiled a couple of us and a like pretty overzealous copy editor realized that I worked in a PR firm and so decided to caption my picture that Grace Bonney doesn't disclose the fact that she's paid by her clients to write about them, which was not true in the least bit, and I had actually had my job made very clear that it was sort of in jeopardy because I had a blog and it made uh, my boss uncomfortable and she didn't like that I was kind of being a little sassy talking about designers. And so I was kind of told to never mix those two things. So to be accused of like secretly being paid to write about clients, which never happened, was a huge blow. So I had built up like six months of trust with an audience that then felt like I had totally betrayed them. So I got this influx of traffic and went from maybe like, 2,000 readers a day to like 15,000 readers a day overnight. But like, wow, the majority of those were people who were just furious that they thought I was being paid by clients. So it was this kind of I was really like thrown into the fire really quickly. And um, but I'm kind of glad it happened because it really forced me to be like very transparent and open and learn to speak up for myself at a really early stage of the business.
0: Yeah, it's like, you know, the best and worst thing is being, you know, at the front of the business. And, you know, any brand that like, I think has legs has a really, you know, strong leader and personality at the helm of it. And people really cling to that. And they, you know, and that's a very big part of my world as well. And it's, um it can be really scary to be to be at the front of that. And just especially when you build a digital business, right, you're behind the scenes and that just seems like a dream. And I know your team works remotely and, you know, and then all of a sudden you're you're thrust in the spotlight. And it's like, wait a second, how did this happen?
1: It is. And, and I'm not of the generation of bloggers that, that started with a sort of personal brand in mind because I didn't think mm-hmm. that – a blog could be a job. I thought it was just this kind of mm-hmm. fun thing you did on the side. And now there's a generation of younger people starting blogs who come out as these like fully formed digital packages <laughs> with like totally. their own brand and their own aesthetic. And they wear a certain type of clothes or like dye their hair a certain color. And it's all very branded. And, and that's great. And I follow those people just as much as everybody else. But it's just a concept that felt really foreign to me because I always felt like I was there for the stuff I was writing about, not for me. And Mm -hmm. so it's been it's been a difficult adjustment to realize that, like, inserting myself a little bit into the content is actually quite important because it keeps the sort of old school personal side of the blog there.
0: Absolutely.
1: Um, How big is your team today? Our full timers are less than, I think there's three of us. And then the part timers are, I think at this point, a group of 12. And we're always kind of waxing and waning with freelancers because I've really come to accept after 12 years in the business that when you work with people who are primarily like under the age of 30, there's just a lot of turnover. And Mm -hmm. people who come in to blog staffs now, I think very much are there to learn and take that information to start their own business. And Mm -hmm. that was really, it's, Still, it's still really difficult for me, but it's something that I've kind of accepted a little bit more that we're going to be a launching pad for people to start their own blogs or their own businesses. And at mm-hmm. this point, I'm kind of happy if I can keep someone for like a year and a half and then have them uh-huh. move on, which is, it's difficult, but it's, I think it's just yeah. part of working online.
0: I, I I think I agree. I don't feel like I've heard anyone really articulate that because it's such a, uh, nobody really has opinions about it no one's even talking about it but and i guess that's part of why you know your book is so interesting and i want to get into um, you know, talking about your new book that's coming out, these women that are doing interesting things and in freelancing or are creatives. And, you know, we have, a, I mean, so many women on this podcast who are entrepreneurs. Okay. Um, it's like, it really is the thing that's happening. And everyone who's, you know, left nasty gal. I mean, I swear like everyone is now a freelancer or has started their own business. I can't take any credit for that. Um, I feel like it's going to be, Really interesting what happens, even economically, in the next like 10 years. Um, Because everyone's freelancing. And it seems, you know, it sounds like you work with a lot of freelancers. Do you have any tips for someone who's getting into freelancing from the side of the employer or even, you know, as someone who's done some freelancing yourself? Like, what? What tips would you have for someone who um, who's going into freelancing? Oh, I have so many. <laughs>
1: it's, it's it's hard <sighs> because I understand both sides of the equation because I remember what it was like to be a full time freelancer, and now I know what it feels like to have to pay like. Full-time salaries and benefits and insurance for people when they're full-time. So it's a give and take. I think from the employer perspective, the biggest lesson I've learned with freelancers is that you need to set very clear boundaries about what you expect and sort of where the line is with what's acceptable and what's not. Because I think when people are Mm. freelance, a lot of times things like deadlines feel really squishy, and you know, (laughs) people feel like because they could start their own website at the drop of a hat, they don't need to have their Edited or to have their voice questioned in any way. So for us, it's been a slow process of defining what we need and this the sort of tone of voice that we prefer, uh, which is one that's very inclusive and compassionate. And that's not something everybody. That's not how everybody writes. And so it's been a process of kind of explaining that, like, hey, if if you're going to write here, this is this this is the language we use. This is language we don't use, and that doesn't work for you, then this isn't a good fit. So defining those boundaries has been really important for me on the business end of things, but. As a freelancer, what I honestly really wish I had done earlier on was do some research about what was typical to be paid at any given place, and now there are so many good resources. There's a website, I think it's called Who Pays What?, and it's just this kind of anonymous listing of who's been paid what to write for different outlets, whether it's like a website mm. or a print magazine. And it's fascinating. And people will upload pay stubs. And it's just kind of gives you a good idea of what the average cost per word it is to be a writer. And I think I get a lot of younger people coming in who expect to be paid like, you know, what breaks down to be like $150 an hour. And I'm not paid Jeez. that much. And not that People don't deserve to be paid that. But the reality of writing for the Internet is that, you know, the heyday of Condé Nast pay scale just doesn't exist anymore.
0: And so you mentioned having um, some boundaries in terms of, you know, working with freelancers and deliverables and style. At some point, did you put together a style guide? What kinds of tools do you use to actually manage the voice and um, and like the execution of your vision? Um,
1: Yeah, sure. So. I like to joke that Design Sponge is pretty much powered by Google and we do everything through a Google Doc through Gchat or through um, an app called Boomerang that, like, makes my email life so much more manageable. Um, and because our team is 100% remote, we have to find times that work for all of us to meet and talk. And I have found that sort of being able to see everyone face to face, even if it's just once a month, makes a huge difference in terms of team morale. So those are the tools that I
0: use the most frequently. So this is your second book. It's called In the Company of Women. Tell us a little bit about this book. Sure.
1: I'm I'm honestly this is the thing I'm happiest about and Uh, The 12 years I've run Design Sponge. And it's the first book I've written that's not what I think maybe people would expect, uh, because I originally began as an interiors blogger. And this is a book of business sort of inspiration and advice. And what inspired it was really realizing that I think maybe six or seven years into running Design Sponge, I discovered that I was far more interested in the people behind the products than the products themselves. And so I started an in-person event series called Biz Ladies, where I traveled across the country and we arranged these evenings where women who are running their own creative businesses could come get free advice on everything from legal matters to wholesale, and then that turned into a weekly column called Biz Ladies because I just couldn't afford to travel around the country on my own anymore. And then that column really became the most fulfilling part of the website for me. And I realized this whole community of handmade makers and, you know, artists and sort of upstart designers, they all wanted to talk to each other and see each other represented. And I just wasn't finding a book that would tell their stories in a way that felt right to me and that, that felt accurate because there were books about people's workspaces. And sort of creatives, but so often they really kind of only depicted the same type of person, which was kind of a young, thin, straight white woman. And I really wanted to see more people's stories and faces reflected. So that turned into this kind of whirlwind two month project where we went around the country interviewing over 100 women and took these incredible portraits um, that Sasha Israel took. And I'm, the result is this book that I feel like really represents everything I believe in so strongly right now.
0: That's so cool. Tell me about your book tour and what you're planning and what it's like to put a book out because it's not something that I've really (laughs) talked about. Maybe it's at some point I will, but it's a really unique thing. Um, The publishing industry is in some ways antiquated, (laughs) but also really exciting because you get to meet so many people. Um, What's that like for you? It's interesting. This process
1: was completely different than the first book process. Um, Both of my books came together really quickly um, because I just I tend to prefer to kind of wait to the last minute and use that motivation to get things done. Um, And I worked with the exact same publisher, um, Artisan Books, and this book they were so supportive of that they really kind of just let me get it done on my own schedule without interfering. And so the production process was it felt like writing a blog. It just felt like gathering information, talking to people being very involved in the production and then handing it over to of all people my in-laws who happen to be book designers and are incredibly talented and they designed the book for us so this process was really enjoyable the first one was a little stressful for me Um, and so I think for that reason the book tour seems like a lot of fun this year and I'm not gonna overdo it like I did for my first book I went to like 33 cities I think in two months and Oh my god! Basically, ran myself into the ground, and it was a horrible idea. Wow! And it was fun. I mean, connecting with that many people in person was just such a thrill. But I—that's like Katy Perry or some <laughs> shit. Like what? Not quite. But I mean, the blog version of that maybe. <laughs> I did 10 once, and I like freaked yeah. out. <laughs> like, yeah, and That's amazing. It's, and I'm doing 12 this time, which for me feels like wow. so manageable and great. So I'm really excited. Um, and the book comes out on October 4th, and the first event is October 5th, and we're going across the country. And I'm basically resurrecting kind of the spirit of the old biz ladies meetups. And I'm going to be doing panels with some of the women from the book who live in those towns and some other women who run great local businesses. And we're going to be having discussions that are very vulnerable and transparent and open. And I want to talk about things that didn't work out and how people have pushed through those moments. And then we'll all kind of just spend some time together connecting as a group. And I just I love events where everyone's open and honest, because I think sometimes conferences can be about kind of listing a greatest hits parade of everything that's gone right with your career. And I always Mm -hmm. learn so much more from the things that I've royally screwed up. So I have found women that I'm so thankful are willing to be sort of open and honest about those moments. So we're going to travel across the country, have panel talks, and and that's going to be it. So I'll be on the road from basically now until uh, mid-November.
0: Cool. Um, and so you asked this really great question in your book of I think almost everybody, maybe everyone, what success means mm. to you? And that's something that I've written about and that we've we've talked about a little bit on this podcast, but I think it's an important thing um because it is it, it seems like success and failure, the way we talk about them in culture are such binary things. And that just assumes that there is like a destination and that when you're done with something, you're done with something and um, that it's just all about like checking off boxes or something. And so I'm just so curious, like from all of the women you've asked these questions of and even your own personal uh, perspective, what what do you think success is?
1: It's And you can't see me because we're in different cities, but I've been nodding my head the whole time you were just describing that. Uh-huh. Um, I, I think what I learned from this book was that, that success and, and failure are not – they're so just – inexplicably intertwined and they are not a fixed place and life is all about movement and change. And so trying to separate those two things and trying to imagine them as permanent states you can achieve is just false. And so I, I kind of gave up on that hope, which was really nice. It was very freeing to realize that, you know, no matter how successful I felt, there were still going to be things that also felt like failure or that didn't work out. And everybody felt that that I interviewed. And even people who'd been in business for 40 plus years still felt moments of, of things not working out. So that was really, really quite important to me to kind of have that realization. And I think for me, success is maybe redefined every six months. I think some months it's just about like, do I feel like everyone on my team is happy and productive and fulfilled and respected? Like that's a goal a goal point for me. And then in some months, it'll that's be really cool. you know, do I feel like I'm putting out content that feels important and not just interesting? Um so it, it's kind of a shifting target. And I've learned to not beat myself up about the fact that I don't have a singular idea of what success is, um because I think that, I try to be really good about recognizing how lucky I am to have the job that I have. And so to be able to pay my bills doing something I really enjoy is that's more success than I probably even knew I could have. So everything that comes after that is just kind of gravy.
0: You're so productive. You've done so much. What is your morning like? You know, what is it? What do you figured out that the rest of us don't? Um, Are are there any productivity apps that you use? Do you meditate? Like, what is your morning like? And then, what kind of hacks may you have to share?
1: it's interesting. I don't use any tools, any hacks, anything technological. My biggest tip for everyone is to get a dog. Um we got two of them. And honestly having that forced need to get out of the house at least twice a day, um, is has been the most helpful tool for me because it's very easy for me to fall into like a couch hole and just basically work and work and work, but then not be aware that the quality of work I'm doing just sucks and it's wasted time. And so when I have a chance to get out of the house a few times a day, it lets me kind of clear my head and refocus. And I used to see it as you know, unproductive time away from work. But in fact, it was actually making me more productive in the moments I was spending in front of the computer. Um, So that's really helpful to me. But I also, honestly, for productivity, the silly Boomerang app on Gmail, and like I am in no way paid by them to say that, but I constantly Uh recommend it because the majority of my work happens via email. And so to get hundreds of emails a day to two different accounts that I have to oversee you can just easily lose a whole day in email. And so being able to kind of uh-huh. separate them out and decide when they come back or when they're sent out has kind of been life-changing for me. So that's the only hack that I have.
0: Cool. Um and then travel. I mean, geez, did you say twenty nine cities on the last book tour? I think Something we like did that? over thirty. I yeah, it was at okay. Least, at least thirty
1: three, I think.
0: Insane. Do you have any like travel tips? <laughs> like, tra- I know I don't normally ask this question, but that's like uh, that's some pretty serious travel. I do actually. I was just before this having
1: lunch uh, with my friend Adam Kurtz, who writes for Design Sponge um, sometimes too, and we were talking about how difficult it is to be on the road for a book tour. And my biggest tip, honestly, which I fully embrace this year is is just being honest and saying no to hanging out and anything that's extracurricular on any given work trip, because it's so easy when you work behind a computer to get excited when you're in person to be able to see all these people that you've only kind of associated with internet handles and Instagram feeds. And it's tempting to stay out late and hang out with every single person, which would be great if that was possible. But when you're traveling every single day and catching 6am flights, you know, for a week in a row, you have to protect your Like moments of sanity and quiet. So, this year I plan on just going straight from every event back to the hotel to like take a bath and read a magazine and focus on some self care. And I think too often when we travel for work, we feel really pressured to be everything to everybody in that city. And that takes a lot away from sort of, I don't know, just the balance you need. So, that's going to be my goal for this year.
0: That's good. I think I'm going to take that away personally because I actually, I just realized. My second book comes out on October 4th as well. Um, <gasps> Big day. So I don't know. We'll probably both be in New York doing like the same yeah. things. <laughs> I'm going to see you on the street um, and make sure you're going home to take a bath and read a magazine. <laughs> I know. I know because everyone's like team dinner, team drinks, celebrate. And like I totally want to and I totally want to hang with my team. But then you're like I've just, I have just signed 200 books. Exactly. And like wrote. You know, like, and that's so fun, but it's, it's also like, that's, it's a lot of work to go through like a full day worth of press and then go to a bookstore and yap and then meet, you know, hundreds of people. And like, so, um, maybe I will go take a bath in the (laughs) evening. Um, and yeah, not tell anyone that I'm in New York until it's too late. (laughs) Um, if you could power brunch with any woman, who would it be and why? Rachel Maddow
1: for 10 billion reasons. Um, She's been my idol for a long time. I I admire any woman in television who kind of stays true to who they are and like how they present themselves. And I think she, for me, has always been somebody who wasn't afraid to have an opinion. And in my community, I think women are often encouraged to kind of be quiet and soft. And I just kind of love that she is not afraid to speak up and stand up. So I would love to have a power bunch with her and uh, her partner, Susan, any day.
0: Cool. Um, and your girl boss moment. So this is something I ask every guest on the podcast. Um, I talk about my girl boss moments sometimes. A girl boss moment is, I don't know, it's kind of like a hallmark moment or it's just the time in your week where you felt like you were in control of your life. You know, I think going back to the hotel after, you know, doing a ton of press and signing books and having expectations and then choosing to do what's right for you and for your future and for your own sanity. That's a girl boss moment. Um, achieving something can also be a girl boss moment. Um, When in the last week, Grace, would you say was your girl boss moment? What was it?
1: Well, you just nabbed my first one, (laughs) which was was, uh, was like being able to have time to be alone on a a book tour event. I did did that in Savannah this week and it felt so powerful. And even something as small as like I skipped the elevator and took the stairs up to the 11th floor because I knew that would be the only time I had to like do a tiny bit of exercise. So that feeling in control always makes me feel like a boss. But honestly, the best moment was today I had lunch with a friend who's written for me before. and realizing that I was able to create a platform that has been able to fund people who I admire's personal projects, that that means so Mm -hmm. much to me because I don't take a lot of time to sit back and think that we've been a part of helping people launch projects or get the word out about things that mean a lot to them and that we've been able to pay them at the same time. I I think that's really rare in the blog community. And it's something I'm really proud of. So I'm trying to use this book tour as a chance to like slow down and think about what has happened over the past 12 years. And so I think that reflection is kind of my my girl boss moment.
0: That's cool. Yeah. It's like that moment in the movies where like someone's like in the center, like the eye of the storm and like everything stops and their mouth kind of like drops open and their life flashes before them. And then there's like clarity. I'm hoping to find that in the middle of it all too. Hopefully we all can.
1: You and me both. I think, I think it exists like in a bathtub with a magazine. (laughs) I think, I think all good things happen in those self care moments.
0: Okay, cool. All right. Bath, more baths for all of us. <laughs> Everyone, you go, you filthy animals. Um, uh, and so tell us, tell our, re- our listeners where we can find you, where we can find your new book. Um, and, uh, yeah. Great.
1: Thanks. So, um, m- the book is called In the Company of Women and it comes out on October 4th and you can find it in bookstores everywhere. And the book tour starts the same day. And all of the information for the book tour and the book tour tickets are at designsponge.com slash book. Very original URL, and that's where I know <laughs> that's where all my information lives for
0: social media too. So it's all in one handy page. Cool. Well, Grace, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This has been such a pleasure. I feel like we might be the same person, <laughs> um, like who have different stories, but um, yeah, I can't wait to spend more time with your book, and um, I hope to meet you. Thank one day. you.
1: You too, and good luck with your tour.
0: now for some girl boss moments. We all heard Grace's amazing girl boss moment, which is one that I think we all have once in a while. Girl boss moments are a time in your week when you feel like you're in control of your life. That could mean getting a promotion, finishing your PhD, or having some much-needed alone time. Whatever that is to you, you can send it in your girl boss moment at hashtag girlbossmoment via Twitter or Instagram. We find it, and we read them out loud here. And we actually – Profile a girl boss moment every week at girlboss.com. So we may contact you to expand, expound upon your girl boss moment. So send them in, guys. Keep celebrating your wins. Claire Maloney at Claire McCool says, just got an appraisal report back for my buyers. Instant equity of $15,000. Girl boss moment. Amazing. Chelsea Nice at Chelsea Nice says, successfully negotiated a raise and title change i'm now a director of marketing at 24 years old amazing alexandra boylan at a boylan four says sold my film i co-wrote and co-produced and act in to my dream distribution company boom that's amazing holy shit marion backle uba says at marion lux realty says open up investment accounts for my three-year-old niece and five-year-old nephew for their college funds for their birthday gifts that's amazing. That is like, I'm going to put that in my, the file that I don't have of gifts for children that I wish I had more reason to uh, give. Don't you guys feel like, I don't know, maybe it's just because I'm 32 and like want to have a family at some point. I didn't feel that way when I was 25. Okay. So if you're listening and you don't get it, I totally, I get you, but I see kids stuff and I'm like, it's so cute. And I just want to buy something for a kid, but I don't have that many kids in my life. I don't know. My friends haven't gotten knocked up enough or something if you're listening and you're my friend please just have a kid so i can buy it stuff anyway Brittany at hood jinxed says finally being brave and looking at my finances for the long haul thank you at sophie amaruso i have nothing to do with it thank you for listening to this podcast and all of the inspiring women who come on it i'm just like the what am i i'm like the lubricant Arissa at bluegrass bell says had to show a boy how to use a leg press oh my god I mean, it shouldn't be, oh, my God, but, like, who doesn't know how to use the leg press at the gym? You just, like, sit on it. All those machines, like, have a chair directed in the direction that you're supposed to, like, put your legs. <laughs> Kathleen Flood at K Flood Warning says, just signed a lease for my first ever studio apartment. So how hyped to finally live alone? Oh, my God, living alone is so dreamy. It can also be lonely, but that's what the Internet's for. My girl boss moment, geez. I guess my girl boss moment was – Taking some much-needed time last week, I went to the south of France with someone who I love and had a really great time, but it never feels like the right time. It feels so selfish to go on vacation um, with this book coming out in a few weeks and tons of stuff going on at Nasty Gal. It feels irresponsible, but it's actually – it was like I had to squeeze it out before the storm comes and uh, you know, my second book comes out. In two weeks and uh, I had to get like a few new freckles I guess all right guys that was another episode of Girl Boss Radio we will be back next week so please tune in our producer is Shara Morris thanks also to Odelia Rubin Kristen Meinzer Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers at Panoply thanks also to the band Phases for our theme song I'm Sophia Amoruso I'll talk to you next week